I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 28 on Robert E. Howard and Elspreg de Camp's Conan the Freebooter. I'm Jeff, and with me is the daughter of Set himself, Hoy. Hello, hello. And we have a very special guest with us from Brazil, Diogo Nogueira. Hey, hi, everybody. Hey. Welcome, welcome. So, Diogo, um, I know you as just, well, I guess I know you as just like an awesome guy and like a buddy of mine who I game with. Uh, but also, I think you're kind of most no- m- most known as the writer of Sharp Swords and Sinister Spells. And you also have the upcoming game, Solar Blades and Cosmic Spells. But you've also done some really awesome art. And I think you've got some stuff coming up for Lamentations. No, it's from Astonishing Swordman Sorcerers of Hyperborea. That's right. That's right. That is so cool. If I can, I would try to illustrate something for Lamentations. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out how to send my portfolio for to Joseph Goodman to maybe do something for DCC. Who knows? Yes. <laughs> Your stuff is so perfect for DCC too. I wish I can I can get something there. I would <laughs> yeah, try. Especially, I'll try. especially now that you're because you're 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 involved in DCC now. Do you want to tell us uh, what you're doing with DCC? Uh, well, um, I I publish a zine here in Brazil called Caveira Velha. Okay. I'm working on publishing the same zine in, in English with some additional materials. Uh, I've I'm developing for a quite some time. Uh, a setting, like a Pope setting for DCC, called Adventures of the Lost Worlds. Like in the 30s, we have Nazis and dinosaurs, Hollow Earth, Atlantis, <laughs> and this kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm the translator for DCC RPG in Brazil, the core book. Nice. And I guess that's it. I, I probably mm. will, will bring some of the DCC books in Portuguese to Gen Con. I think that's we're working this out with with Joseph. Cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely be instant collector collector's <laughs> item up here. I think so. So for anybody who's listening who doesn't know sharp swords and sinister, I mean, um, yeah, who doesn't know sharp swords and sinister spells or solar blades and cosmic spells, what would you like them to know about it? Well, uh, sharp swords and sinister spells, uh, rooms light RPG with focusing on sword and sorcerer adventures, inspired by Robert e. Howard. Michael Moorcock and Fritz Leiber. Uh, it takes the skeleton of the Black Hack, but adds a lot of stuff from DCC or Call of Cthulhu or Beyond the Wall. I I take bits and pieces for all, all of the games I, I like and try to make something of my own that I really would like to play. And it has a really strong uh, old school sensibilities about it. And Solar Blades and Cosmic Spells is basically taking all that and putting it in space. It's basically yes. sword and sorcery in space. I love that. Yeah, and your stuff is so flavorful, so Appendix N. And a lot of the fun kind of uh, Appendix N sci-fi tends to be like you hop in a spaceship, you go on a planet, and then on that planet there's like castles and wizards and stuff. And that's not the kind of sci-fi we think of today, so it's really fun to see that that's like the the next the next iteration of Sharp Swords and Sinister Spells. Yeah, it's like 
why 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 separate both right why separate fantasy from science fiction because science fiction is basically fantasy but we we put some machines and robots there but mm-hmm. everything else is basically fantasy <laughs> exactly <laughs> so diogo how did you get into role playing uh i when i was in i think uh middle school uh in my school, they had we had to choose a book to read, like to talk about in class, and they the uh, the students would su- suggest the books, and someone would suggest the one of those uh, fighting fantasy books. The oh okay, the Steve Jackson Death Trap Dungeon, I think. Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I read that, and I started collecting fantasy, fantasy uh, fighting fantasy books, and I moved to another another place. And one of the the kids who lived in the in the building saw me reading the uh, fighting fantasy books and said, "Wow, you like fighting fantasy books? You really like this?" And showed me a role playing game from Brazil called Tagma, which is like uh, it's similar to Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, but with something more complicated and some some stuff more uh, simpler than AD and D. Okay. And I started playing that, and I found about D and D, and I bought the the black box, the simple Dungeons and Dragons simple black box with the red dragon. Yeah, mm. and then I started from that. I went to after that second edition, third edition, and in the nineties I started experimenting on everything. Uh, they released Vampire here. I played a bunch of Vampire, GURPS, and and then I started figuring out other games. <laughs> Very cool, man. And was most of the stuff um, uh, in translation, or were you having to read oh, this in English? All translated. Uh, ah, okay. In the beginning, until uh, third edition, I, I read everything in Portuguese. And when uh, third edition released here, I committed a crime to sell all my second edition stuff to buy third edition stuff. <laughs> oh. And now I'm trying to buy it all back. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. After third edition, I started uh, reading stuff in English because I already learned. It. I was about fifteen, and I, I could read in English not, uh, then. And I started buying stuff in English because stuff wouldn't release here in Brazil. If they would if they would sell the core books, maybe one or two supplements on adventures, but they wouldn't translate everything. So if I wanted to read other stuff, I, I would have to learn English anyway. And were you aware of Appendix N as a concept? I mean, because obviously you weren't playing first edition. No. Yeah. So, yeah. so how then? It, yeah. I knew about uh, Lord of the Rings, right? Because right. everybody says, oh, D&D is about Lord of the Rings. So I read Lord, Lord of the Rings. Um, in, when I was playing Vampire, I read N. Rice books. Uh, uh-huh. But just small things. I, I, obviously, I read uh, Savage Sword of Conan, the com- Conan comics, but I, mm-hmm. I didn't know it was a character from, from literature, from Robert, Robert Howard and stuff like that. Had no idea. All right. And so how did then you come to all the swords and sorcery that's now sort of influencing your gaming at this point? Uh, it was basically because of Dungeon Crawl Classics. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And it's the stuff... Yeah. Uh, it was about the same time when I found out about DCC and when I found out uh, about that blog, Rognardia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, James Malachowski. Pope, yeah, Pope yeah. Fantasy. And I started reading, I started devouring all these books I could get my hands on. And, and how, how difficult is it to get the various Appendix N books in Brazil? 
Oh, I, you can't find it. I buy it online. I buy Kindle editions. I buy audio books on, on Audible and stuff like that. It's really uh-huh. hard to... They, they started translating some of the stuff. We, we, we don't have uh, Fritz Leiber here, like the Far Farther Angry Mouser books. We don't have. But we have uh, some of the Robert E. Howard stuff. Mm-hmm. Not everything. We have the first two books of uh, Eric Saga from Michael Moorcock. We had some Jack Vance, but it was raining the past, so you you only find it on used bookstores. We don't mm-hmm. have anything anyone publishing it right now. We have Lovecraft because well, Lovecraft is like the the father of all horror, all modern horror, right? Right. So right. we have some here, but nothing much else. Not much mm-hmm. beside that. Mm-hmm. So it's really incumbent on someone who is interested in this to, to be actively searching for it instead of just like discovering it on their, on their local bookstore or something like that. Yeah, it's yeah. hard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a, a great segue into discussing what we're reading today. So uh, today it's, you know, Robert E. Howard and Elspreth DeCamp's Conan the Freebooter. And in my hand, I've got the British copy. Um, I've got the 1976 reprint of the 1974 book by by Sphere Books, and it's got this really stupid cover on it by John Duilo. Have you have you seen this cover before? I have seen the image, the, the image, but not yeah. the cover. Yeah. I have seen the illustration. Yeah, it's so bad. It's like, like it's like a bad Tarzan cover. It's a bad Tarzan cover, <laughs> and he's like hacking off this this gorilla's arm. But the gorilla's arm appears to be like sprouting out of like somewhere in the middle of its torso. It's, it's not even in the right <laughs> – like it's not coming out of his shoulder. Right. It's, it's really weird looking. And we'll get into it I guess when we, when we talk about the, the actual story later. But the monster he's killing there, the way that monster is described in the yeah. book is so evocative yeah. and so cool. And then we just get this boring gorilla <laughs> on the cover. Ugh. I'm really disappointed with this John Duilo cover. Uh, Hoy, which copy are you reading? I have uh, the Lancer, uh, I guess 1973 printing with same Duilo painting, Ugh. but it's with the trade dress indicating it's the third in the series. Yep. Um, there was actually a rule in, um, I think it was Julie Schwartz, one of the comics uh, editors, said that everything sells better with gorillas on the cover. Okay. So, <laughs> gorillas, motorcycles, and volcanoes. So if you get all three, then it's and di- dinosaurs. So that's the... Oh, uh, yep, yep, yep. Uh, but as is my want, I also have a little stack here of stuff. I didn't buy specifically for it. I already had. So I had the uh, Del Rey uh, Coming of Conan trade paperback because some of the stories are in there. And then one of the stories, of Which Shall Be Born, is in the... Bloody Crown of Conan, trade paperback, back. And um, this is kind of a deep cut, but uh, two of the stories are actually rewrites of his uh, historical Middle Eastern story. So I actually also already had this. I did not seek this out specifically for the podcast, but The Lord of Samarkand, which is a lot of uh, Howard's historical fictions uh, based in the Middle East and uh, Arabia. And um, so two of the stories in there are stories that were rewritten as Conan stories for this for this volume. So I happen to have that as well. Very cool. So, and how about you? Yeah, well, uh, since I couldn't find the Conan the Freebooter here, I, I also read on the Del Rey books that I have mm-hmm. here the the ones that were from Robert Howard and the ones from Let's uh, Brain I I kind of had to find a. Uh, ebook on the internet on the yeah how how easy or hard was it the, on the internet yeah how hard was it to find uh it was it? hard 
Yeah, Hawks over Shem and the Road of Road the of Eagles. Eagles. Yeah, yeah. I tried to find them on Amazon or something like that, the ebook, but they they don't have audio book. They don't have uh, Kindle books uh, of that. Okay, so basically, you're telling us that we're now dealing with uh, with an international pirate criminal conspiracy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I try. I, I, I tried really hard to find it on the on the legal. <laughs> to get it legally but i couldn't find it right. yeah i had to go in the black market yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right well before we head over to the library we are going to quickly look at our word our hygaxian word of the day votary votary and a votary is a person such as a monk or a nun who has made vows of dedication to religious service and the word votary is found on page 54 and here it says, legend made Thugra Khotan more than human. His worship yet lingered in a mongrel degraded cult where votaries stamped his likeness on coins to pay the way of their dead over the great river of darkness of which the Styx was but a material shadow. And it is also featured again on page 57, where it says that men said that the uplands of the Hyborians were the goal of Nathok and his chanting votaries. So votary, it's kind of a cool little word that you can use to describe a priest, I guess. Mm, there you go. Or uh, yeah. a cultist. Priest, cultist. There you go. Yeah, cultist is better than priest. Yeah. So anyways, that was our word of the day. Let's head on over to the library. So um, you want to talk about which stories are in here first and then... Uh... I think that's a great idea. So we've got, we've got five stories yeah. in here. The first is Hawks over Shem, which is a rewrite of... Hawks over Egypt. Hawks over Egypt. Yeah. And then we've got Black Colossus, which is a, a proper Conan story, mm -hmm. uh, followed by Shadows in the Moonlight, which is also a proper story. Right. It's also called uh, Iron Shadows on the Moon and its original title. Okay, great, great. The Road of the Eagles is another rewrite. Was it also called The Road of the Eagles yeah, in its original title? Yeah, it was called The Road of the Eagles. And then when it was first republished in its original form, it was given another title, which I forget. Okay. okay just to distinguish it. And then we finish off with another proper Conan story, A Witch Shall Be Born. Right. So, Diogo, what do you think of these five stories? Do you have a favorite? Do you have a least favorite? Uh, I think I like The uh, Witch Shall Be Born the best. Me too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That one's great. Is, uh, there, is there one that you... Is the one you didn't care for? How do you feel about the the Elspring to Camp rewrites of the Middle yeah, Eastern adventures? I don't know. I I, I thought their uh, his story is more confusing than normal Conan story. More than normal story is more focusing on him, and yeah. his stories have a lot of characters mm -hmm. doing a lot of things. And Conan mm -hmm. just appears here and appears there, and he has a uh, important uh, part on the story, but. Uh, I don't know. It seems just to pass through the story as it's happening. Yeah, a lot of stuff happening and he just in there. Yeah. Yeah. I very much agree with you, Diogo. And I was noticing I started reading Hawks Over Egypt and I realized what was going on with how the camp was doing. He basically changed the name of all the historical things to these fictional lands in the Conan universe, but they didn't have any resonance mm -hmm. with me. And so that was part of what was confusing. Like I don't know where uh, you know, Shem is in relation to Koth is in relation to all these other kingdoms, and I never felt it. And as you say, Conan moves through the stories, but without really feeling like he's in or a part of the story. Yeah. So I agree with you that those two stories um, are weak as Conan stories. But as far as I can tell, reading it as Hawks over Egypt, it's much stronger in its original form. 
Yeah, um, and it's like absolutely I agree with you guys both completely that the two El Sprague de Camp rewrites um, they're, they both, they have too many characters. There's too much going on, but interestingly, I feel like even in, in a witch shall be born, which is also my favorite of the collection, there are lots of characters and a lot going on, but it's yeah. way more focused and it really works. And Conan plays a big role. Although I did find it interesting that Conan's not even the one to rescue the queen. Yeah. <laughs> and that was just some, some other dude, Valerius right. or whatever. Um, but he did kind of come in at the last moment and kill the big monster at the end. But also he kind of didn't too. Like he just kind of rode in with his riders and like right. told them to shoot arrows into it. Right, right. But he has uh, a, like a really important part because of his heavenly with the the captain that was yes. with, the, with the witch. So yeah. he has really strong ties to this story. But the mm-hmm. other stories seem that Things are happening, and well, there's Conan there, and things right. are still happening. Oh, Conan did this, and things are happening. <laughs> right. Um, what I really appreciate about What Shall Be Born, and I think we are all agreed it's probably our favorite story in here, is it shows a couple elements. It's it's a genuine horror story. Yeah. Right. Um, and it also shows other aspect of Conan is that he not his sheer mightiness. It's his craftiness, his leadership abilities. Um, you know, he he gets rescued off of the tree of pain, right? Which is, I guess, what's iconic in the movie as well, right? Mm-hmm. With uh, Arnold on the tree of pain at some point. And then, um, you know, he it falls takes over with, the band. <laughs> right, takes over the band. He secretly plots and creates a second band. And he creates the, the fake siege engine. So they think that he's going to bring all these, like, war machines to, to lay siege to the city. Um, so there's a, that whole other aspect of Conan that, you know, will come out more and more later in his career. But yeah. that we haven't seen up to this this point, you know, mm-hmm. up to this point, we've seen him as a, a clever rogue and, and a master swordsman, but not this, you know, strategist. Yeah, I love how, how this break the stereotypes of uh, stupid barbarian, right? Oh, oh yes. Barbarian, stupid, because you see Conan, Conan has nothing of, he may be, he not be uh, cultured and no uh, civil, civilized uh, knowledge, but he has, he's really smart, he has really strong perception and understand what's going on and who wants what and how to achieve what he wants. Mm-hmm. He's really, really smart for a barbarian. Right. Like. right, right. He's the first one to figure out that that the queen has been replaced by a witch, yeah. by Salome. You know, he's, yeah, and yeah. he seems to just know that intuitively. Yeah. But what's also interesting to me is I feel like of these adventures, Black Colossus is probably the most kind of classic kind of Conan tale. You know, he shows up in kind of a weird remote place with some kind of a woman who needs help. And they find that there's some like evil mystery in the place that felt very kind of classic Conan to me. But what's interesting to me about looking at that next to a witch shall be born is in a witch shall be born. He intuitively knew that the queen had been replaced, but in black Colossus, it's Olivia who is certain that the statues are actually alive. And she's the one who has the dream that tells her about what's really going on here. And Conan's the one who's kind of not believing her. And That's also- actually, uh, Shadows in the Moonlight is when, which is Olivia. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, you're right, you're right. Shadows in the Moonlight. Yeah. I apologize. I yeah. said the wrong the wrong title. Yeah. Um, but yes, that's Shadows in the Moonlight. Yeah. But, um, but- Well, you're right. He, he's kind of not dismissive of it exactly, but he doesn't place great importance on this- um, yeah, supernatural aspect. Yeah, and also she at one at one point notices that she's being watched too. She doesn't know how or why she's being watched, but she knows that she is. And I found it interesting that although she's this like delicate, uh, actually, there's a really funny section that's describing just kind of inc- just how delicate she is. 
Uh, <laughs> and actually, let, let me pull that one up real quick because that's really a hilarious moment. Right. Uh, it's on page 106 and it's in – he says to her, you are soft-skinned and used to shelter in dainties. I could sleep naked in the snow and feel no discomfort, but the dew would give you cramps for you to sleep in the open. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, she's clearly of civilization, but somehow she's tuned in to whatever's going on here in a way that Conan isn't. Yeah, I don't know if it's because she's more afraid of things than he is. So that's why she already feels like something can go wrong because of the stone that was was thrown at them on the on the forest and yeah she was point. already feeling that something was wrong there mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he was like ah, i don't care just sleep here it's all good i'm here for you sure mm-hmm. <laughs> so i felt these three stories were again kind of similar in that there was a civilized woman who then was yeah. put in a situation of distress yes right gets <laughs> yeah, uh, kind uh, of old <laughs> yeah, I say to read all three of them in a chunk. Yeah, it gets yeah. Kind of old. I mean, if they were scattered out, and it's like, oh, this is at a certain point of Conan's career, this happens, you know. Yeah. But after this point, it's like, why does this keep happening to him? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what and what keeps happening to these women between the adventures too? <laughs> you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I was always wondering that. What happens to them? He just yeah. Is he just breaking up with them? Do they do they, do they? Does he just like drop them off somewhere? Is he like secretly a serial killer, and we don't know yeah, about that right, side of Conan? Right. Like yeah. something's going on. Uh, up to the point where Alice Bragg Camp actually had to write uh, these like fake little introductions for some story. Yes. So Shadows in the Moonlight actually has this introduction. So he's he's uh, you know restored Yasmila Yasmila to her throne in um, Black Colossus, mm-hmm. but then the introduction Shadows in the Moonlight because he. Uh, the camp puts these little like, oh, here's what Conan does next. Before yeah. he, goes, he goes, Conan's pride will not let him be quote unquote Mister Queen to any woman, no matter how <laughs> beautiful or ardent. After a time, Conan slips away to revisit his Sumerian homeland and avenge himself on his old enemies, the Hyperboreans. <laughs> Mister Queen, <laughs> Mister Queen. <laughs> he wrote that. I know. I don't have this part. Yeah, that's DeCamp, yeah. Yeah, that, that's Elspring DeCamp. <laughs> that's definitely DeCamp. Before before each Conan story, he tried because what they're doing here is, you know, the 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 Doré books <laughs> put them in publication order. Yeah. But the original paperbacks from the 70s, from the 60s and 70s, Lynn Carter and Elspring DeCamp are trying to put them in the order of Conan's internal chronology. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So they would put these like little kind of goofy introductions to each story, kind of linking what happened between the last right. two. And it yeah. always feels so forced. Right. I know very- so I, I noticed on the Hawks over Chem, at least the 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 EPUB uh, edition I had was this kind of solution ah, between this and that story. Mm, and I thought, well, yes. that's weird. I didn't know it was an introduction. It's weird to write that on that story, yeah. but okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a very fanboy thing to do. It's like to make everything want to fit perfectly. Yeah. You know, um, and like I can, I can understand that like when I'm like 13 or 14 or, you know, when you're watching Star Wars, like how does this fit exactly with this thing? You know, like, yeah. <laughs> instinct. Um, but or think, in Shadow in the Moonlight, yeah. you know, when he becomes the king of the, the king of the pirates or whatever yeah. on the pirate ship. What um, in the very end of the story, there's that one pirate, Ivanos, yeah. who was the one who was really kind of campaigning for him to be able to be the, 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 the pirate captain. And then one of the characters who he's rewritten in the Road of the Eagles is Ivanos. Elspeth de Camp carries over the Ivanos character, oh, which cool. is not something we normally see with the Conan stories. Mm-hmm. Usually all of the other kind of tangent, tangential characters stay in their own short story. Right, right. And it is yeah. the, the King Yildiz is in the background of these three stories. Too. Yeah. This king who has a, 
you know, I'm mad on for, for Conan. So that's why, you know, Conan's still an outlaw on here. Um, yeah, I don't think it really helps that whole aspect because I think the publication order as you're reading them in the, the Delray trade paperbacks that you have and that I have as well, gives it more of a feel like, oh, you're just sitting in a bar and you hear about, hey, have you heard about this dude Conan, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it gives it a more sort of mythic feel like, you know, at, then trying to just string it all together in a, in a chronological timeline. Yeah. Um, so, Diogo, as, as somebody who's living in 2018 and somebody who's living in Brazil and is reading these stories, is there any, any parts of it that seem a little weird or outdated to you or that are uncomfortable or not really? Uh, yes. I mean, all the, how they portray non-male fighting people, like uh, women are all fragile. And, and, and I listened to some of them on, on audiobook. And how the the person makes the voice of woman? Oh, help me, Connor! <laughs> it's, it's 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 ridiculous. It's like <laughs> I don't know. It's totally either that or it's some like evil woman who's using magic to get him. Oh yeah, you know? yeah. All women are either completely like uh, useless and need to be rescued, or they're just like evil just witches who are going to take yes. you down with their like womanly magics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I don't know the way he talks about uh, people of color too. Yeah, what was interesting to me is it seemed like the most vile descriptions of people of color in this collection were in the two Elspreg de Camp rewrites. Right. So I don't know if it is actually there in the yeah. original story. So I was like going to say because about the rolling eyes and the sort of like the sort of like slobbery lips, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah the way he describes the Uetchi, is that yeah. what he calls them in? in... Uh, yeah, the Uetchi. I think that story I haven't read. That's um, but the, they're like Bulgarians, right? And then there's the, the he describes the sort of the Sudanese who are the um, uh, you know, the black riders in um in hawks over hawks over shem and they have their the rolling eyes and the, the, the thick lips and stuff like that so that's definitely um, well if they are bulgarians yeah. in in your story yeah. he's made them asian somehow in this oh, one because yeah, he yeah, talks yeah. about their like yellow faces and their slanty eyes oh, okay so they could be huns but um uh but yeah specifically i mean i don't think it's again um it, it's really horrible it's 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 but it just feels like it's just here's a trope to throw on here here's yeah. another group of you know, the, the uh, shams all have hawk noses, you yeah. know, and hooked noses. Um, so they're obviously, yeah. <laughs> you know, Arabs or, or could be, um, you know, um, uh, what am I thinking of? Pre-Palestinian, uh, some of the tribes in what is now, you know. Sure. In Israel and Palestine. And also in Hawks over Shem, he just keeps referring to them as the blacks. Right. The blacks did this, and then the blacks did that. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, but when he talks about anybody else, he's like, "Oh, the army rides in and does this," or right. "Oh, the the this group of people." Do, it's it's never just like the blacks, right? So yeah. yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's definitely there. There's no denying it. Um, but again, it feels to me like, oh, here's just one group. Here's just the thing that stands out about that one group. It happens to be like the most negative stereotype that hangs out about that one group. But he's, each group is a type, right? So the Shem, the Shemites have the hook noses. Such and such uh, have like, you know, the Kozaks are, you know, like this. The, the um, whoever, his buddy Al Malrik is blonde, blue eyed. So it's just a type, 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 type. Um, it's not as... Um, deeply felt again i am gonna stripe on, stripe on that point it's not like ingrained the way it is with hp lovecraft yeah like, you know oh i agree with that yeah. one thing i found interesting is when we read clark ashton smith 
Uh, there was also some really like uncomfortable depictions of black people. And, but specifically there was this like mute black man who was just kind of especially useless, but also in these collections, there was two different times where we talk more about mute black men. Mm. And yeah. I, I don't, I didn't realize that that was like a trope or a cle- or like a thing. Right. Is, is there some, like, did, did they used to like cut the tongues out of slaves or something? Like, where does this come from? Yeah, I'm, I'm not too familiar with it myself, but they were all like harem guards or. Yeah. Anything. But it was like a whole group of like, he kept calling them like right. the mute blacks. Right. So like, wh- why were they mute? Right. Like, were they like, did they just happen to collect like a whole group of black people who happened to be mute or. Yeah, I don't no, know. I, it's particular for black people, but I, I've, I've read stories about, uh, <laughs> cutting tongues of slaves because people don't even recognize them as people. So, you, so they yeah. will tuck their secrets away even if they are there. Mm. So they cut their tongues out so they can't reveal their secrets they they mm. hear. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. And obviously we know about like Unique says, you know, harem guards and stuff like that. But sure. yeah, specifically this trope of these, these uh, you know, guards having their tongues cut out. Yeah, does it, generic, does it relate generically just to having, as you say, slaves that we don't even we want to just be able to talk in front of, or is it specifically black slaves that I don't know that yeah. there's a differentiation, but, but you're right. It did stand out a couple of times. It popped out at me. Totally. Um, so yeah, that would be, you know, that is still very uncomfortable to read, you know? Um, One thing that stuck out to me, and maybe this is a good way of kind of segueing into the, the gaming side of it is I feel like there was a lot more, there was a lot more kind of mass combat in these stories. There was, Big, big armies moving through the lands. Um, and in one of the stories, the army is 11,000 people strong. Plus, he gets an ar- like a, an additional 3,000 horsemen to come and support him. And I don't know, like it's 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 not the kind of Conan story I'm used to in those senses. Um, I'm not usually used to these like massive battles. But also, I'm curious, like, how do you feel like you c- – do you feel like these stories you could tell using role-playing game systems we have now? And if so, like what kind of system would you want to use to kind of tell these kind of stories, these like massive wars? Right. Well, I mean, we're all DCC players and we know that DCC doesn't have that element, like at least officially. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I mean, if you, if you, if you want to play like you're doing a Conan story, he, he plans everything and it's narrates very fast. Um, but but they focus on action of Conan, so you can have like a really simple system to deal with what happens on the with the armies, yeah. but and have some scenes for the characters to do something special and, and tilt the balance of the of the the conflict in their favor or against them. Maybe they they will go to the enemy's encampment to steal their plans. Mm-hmm. So that's a small adventure, and if they complete it, they gain uh, additional dice to resolve the the whole conflict in a very narrative right, way right. like i think um uh, currently with sort of old school role-playing games I and mean, we you talked about it in hobbs and friends as adventure conquer king has mm-hmm. has a mass combat system um but back in the days of D, obviously they had chain mail so they could bring it out to chain mail or um that's sort of spells that's a good and point. then later on i guess around the sort of uh second edition era they had battle system and a couple other mass combat systems i'm not as familiar with those because i been out by the end of first edition yeah um but i think um yeah maybe in stuff like fifth edition which is very popular at the moment and fourth edition those were very much focused on individual combats battle map type of situations so there mm-hmm. weren't 
as sort of wargamey mm-hmm. and, and people don't necessarily come with wargame roots anymore. And so as Diogo, you just mentioned, sort of more, a more narrative approach to resolving these mass battles yeah. might be um, more familiar to to the modern day gamer. Than- and also, I think yeah, I think your, the, the approach that Diogo is suggesting here makes a lot more sense for me and what I would want in a game as well. I don't know that I necessarily want to zoom the focus out to kind of the larger map and have to worry about the movement of armies and things like that. I think I'm more yeah. interested in what's happening on the character level as they're you know, being surrounded by the the craziness of war. Mm-hmm. And Diogo, as somebody who's written a role-playing game that's specifically inspired by the works of Robert E. Howard, how do you feel, um, like, like, was there anything from these stories that inspired specifically the game that you wrote? Or is there stuff that you feel like your game would be especially good at emulating in these? Uh, well, about the, the Conflictor Armies, I actually wrote something for this, and it's on Solar Blades, but it can usually be used on Sharp Swords too. It's really more like narrative and abstract. Uh, you, may, you, may, you may gain like a small bonus for help, so your army has more, uh, is better trained than that army, so you get a plus one. Ah, but their army is more numerous, they get a plus one. Just compare like uh, a small thing like, oh, you have a better position. You have on higher grounds. You get a plus mm-hmm. one. But they always focus on creating small adventures, small tasks that people can think to go. So you want to challenge their general for a one, one-on-one combat to boost your morale. Okay, you do that. If you want, you get a plus one. And just resolve in the end, resolve with, uh, with some D6 dice and compare this to sex so you can lose some part of your troops and things like that so and and the battle is resolved in three to five roll of that's, the dice that's so right to, to be more abstract and more narrative but also count on strategies if players come up with a, with a tactic oh we're gonna flank them we're gonna pretend we're we're bringing fake siege engines mm-hmm. yeah they can gain a bonus you can you can create everything and it's more it's more narrative to you create advantage so you give small bonus and and then can they can play right. with that so but i don't want to focus on miniatures and moving stuff on a big big scale map and things like that i don't want to deal with right. that because first because uh, miniatures are really expensive and requires a lot of space and i want my game to to be more adventurous instead of more that's cool. yeah. And that would also give more opportunity for more players, right? It tends to be when you have a big war game thing situation, it's usually maybe just two at max four players. Whereas here, if you're having, for example, um, one person deal with the trickery, one person dealing with the straight, uh, you know, challenge to the other general or mm-hmm. something like that. So each, each, oh, yeah. each person can bring their ideas to the table. Well, it's like in A Witch Shall Be yeah. Born, we've got the character who decides he's going to pretend to be... Rescue someone. Yeah, right. yeah he's... He, he, they can rescue a prisoner. Yeah. Totally. Sorry. But the yeah. one character who decides who pre- decides to pretend that he's going uh, to pretend to be a, a deaf beggar, and because he's pretend, pretending to be this deaf beggar, he now ends up finding out the secret, uh, right. the, 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 the secret that, yes, indeed, Conan was right. Yeah. The, the queen really isn't the queen. She's actually this evil witch who's taken her form. Right, right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and then he's able to stay behind while yeah. everyone's out on the battlefield. So he can have these other actions that are happening behind enemy lines, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, as you say, zoom out sw- or cut to a different scene. It's mm-hmm. hard to do that when you have a giant set piece battle. Yeah. Right. And you're, as you say, you spread out over table and things kind of take their own pace 
which is not the pace of old school role playing, right? Of, of DCC, of any of those games where you were like, oh, we're here, here, let's do this, here, let's do this, here, let's do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you thought about my game, that, that's one thing I wanted to make my game simple and don't have all the skills and talents and things like that. Mm. Because the tales from Conan and for for Fraud and Grey Mouser, they're really fast, they're fast-paced, they're exciting. Mm-hmm. They don't have a lot of really details. So I wanted to make the game like that too. Like, just roll and keep going. Totally. doesn't have to stop for... Because I feel like when you've got... Like like right now, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm playing in a Pulp Cthulhu game. And... Call of Cthulhu is great. Pulp Cthulhu is great. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I notice as a player is I've got this, this, this character sheet that's got relatively small print. And the majority of the sheet is my list of the list of skills. Yeah, right. And I've got a percentage for each, each thing. And I find that a lot of my attention as a player is often focused on looking at that list of skills and deciding what I'm going to do based on what skills I know that I have. And I feel like that can be really a limiting experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's if there's nothing listed there, then I can do anything. Mm-hmm. But if yeah. everything's listed there and it tells me what I can do and what I can't do, then suddenly I don't feel like I've got a world of opportunity. And uh, and to bring it maybe even a little farther back and maybe at the risk of derailing, when you played Call of Cthulhu in the very beginning, people took those percentages as a literal hard percentage mm-hmm. rather than saying something that's a, a, a critical situation. So people would just constantly fail the spot hidden and the adventure would just stop. People were like, oh, you didn't roll your spot hidden roll and you know, because you only had like 15%, 20%. Right. Oh. <laughs> and, and it's only later that people said, oh, well, let's do this a little bit more narratively and say that's for something that's really obscure. Mm-hmm. If it's just like behind a curtain, you're going to have like three, you know, plus 20 to that or, or double that odds, you know, or just say yes. Right. You know, if, yeah. if you're, if your characters are saying, I'm going to spend the room, I'm right. going to spend the, 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 the next half hour carefully going through everything in this room, opening right. up drawers, looking behind curtains. Of course, they're going to find this thing. Right. Don't even make them roll. Right. It's just more like, it. Oh, this is like in an instant you spot right away. That's the, so, but that takes a little bit more um, education on both the player's part and the game master's part to yeah. understand that this is what's the context of what's possible. So I really, actually that brings me an interesting point. So um, Diego, you mentioned that all of this, a lot of the sword and sorcery stuff is very hard to find in Brazil. So how do yeah. you get that, um, that feeling, that mentality, that ethos, how do you communicate that to the players and get them engaged in that ethos? Well, uh, the literature is hard to find, but at least the Savage Sword of Conan comics we had we had here for quite a long time, and it's it's very very popular. People really like the Conan comics, so at least with that they are familiar. Okay, we had the we don't have books from from Fritz Leiber, but we had the the Mike Mignola comics from sure from the nineties Dark Horse. It's really I liked it a lot, so. People are kind of familiar with that. Uh, Savage Words Lankmar was released here in Brazil too, so there's that. We don't have the literature yet, but they're working on maybe translating too. Mm-hmm. And but it's hard because I sell my game here in Brazil too as Spadas Afiadas Feitios Sinistros, which is translation from Sharp Swords and Sinister Spells. And but I see a lot of people not familiar with Sword and Sorcery playing it as D and D, they make elves, goblins, and things okay. like that. <laughs> yeah. And well, I try not to say you are playing it wrong. But sure. Oh, cool. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I, but uh, Brazilian edition has a list of inspirations. Oh, 
maybe you should try yeah. think and look of the inspirations too to see if there's something else you, you might want to do with that. And yeah. Uh, yeah, the tiefling Things warlock doesn't along. really have a, a, a basis in uh, sword and sorcery. Right. So as you were reading these stories, was there anything that leapt out at you as something that you would like to use in your gaming? I, I really like the shadows in the moonlight, the statues with the that come alive with the stars and things like that. I, I, the first time I read that, I, I, I thought... I have to use this in one of my adventures. I really like this. Yeah. The island with the, the old civilization. There are statues that come alive with the light. Totally. I really like that. Yeah. Mm. One that I really liked was in Hawks Over Shem. We've got the, 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 the king is slowly going mad and he's been getting wackier and wackier as, time's going, as time is going on. And at first. That's reminding the Ho Hung King from Lord of the Rings, too. Right. Yeah, totally. And that kind of stuff at first in an, in a in a game or in an adventure might just kind of be like, oh, that's this king's kind of eccentric. And then as the campaign continues, the you could you could have it set up so that like, oh, actually he's starting to enact some crazy rules. Mm-hmm. And the that's king, awesome. in, yeah, the king in this story, he's doing all kinds of things like where he says that there, he outlaws lights. Mm-hmm. Nobody can like light things at night. He outlaws uh, outlaws wine and uh, gambling. He mur- has all of the dogs killed and women aren't allowed to walk on the street. And it's so punishable by it's, it's so punishable that cobblers won't even make shoes that women can wear to walk on the right. streets anymore. And I think it would be neat. Like, yeah, in your campaign, like adds at add something in that, like at first seems a little eccentric, but then slowly becomes more and more sinister. Right. Especially. That's a great if, idea. Yeah. yeah. Especially if your characters are already like the pay or have patrons, you know, I mean, both in the DC sense and in just in general, mm-hmm. like, you know, they already are the knights of a certain king or a baron and have that slowly, you know, change on them. Do when do they decide? Do they decide to stay loyal? When do they decide to rebel? If they're going to rebel, you know, mm-hmm. do they are they suddenly the bad guys? Are they suddenly the stormtroopers? Yes, right. <laughs> um, because that I mean that's very much the case in um, even also a, um, a which shall be born. At first, they can't; they're not sure. It's only Conan who says, "Oh, she's not here." The mm-hmm. other soldiers at first think that he's attacking their queen. Yeah, right? and so they're like, "Oh, what are we doing?" You know, and then, then they get massacred by you know the the new mercenaries and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's a lot to that. Um, so being able to sort of slowly maybe introduce, especially if you have a long campaign, you can sort of slowly introduce a little bit of oddity and maybe yeah. focus on, you know, you know, it's like, you know, boiling a frog, right? As that saying goes, you know, we don't necessarily know and we're living in these times. <laughs> and maybe it's not even the town that your adventurers are in. Maybe right. they just keep hearing stories from this like neighboring kingdom. Like things are getting weirder and weirder over there. And like, eventually it starts to get to a point where like, Oh, now actually this insane King mm-hmm. is, is a huge threat. Another thing that came mm-hmm. to mind, I noticed was, um, was Conan's fame. Now that Conan is becoming more and more powerful and has been living a longer life and has been traveling from place to place, people are starting to know who he is. Right. And for better or for worse, because also he ends up, at one point ends up encountering the the current uh, that was that was in Shattered in the Moonlight when they encounter the pirates. He figures he's going to try to like you know get them to like all kind of team up together. But yeah, the current but captain's like, I know you and I you hate bastard. you. <laughs> you bastard Conan. Uh, and I don't know, do you guys address the the idea as your as 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 judges and dungeon masters that as your characters get higher level, they're more and more likely to be recognized by other people for better or for worse for their past pursuits? 
Um, I've started to do that actually. Yeah. Because I've been running a pretty long game with um, uh, uh, Portsmouth Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a good idea, and I think there's actually a way to do it. It's already built into the OSR games because you have the reaction table. Oh yeah. Right, and so just you know start adding modifiers maybe for like every second or third level. Mm-hmm. Right, and you have the reaction table, you know, and you can do yeah, it. Yeah, the reaction table, it's it's. Good or bad, but right. if you if you like infamous, it's usually going to be bad anyway. Right? Yeah, that's <laughs> a good the point. Guy is infamous too. Right. Well, I mean, I, you I, can I use had it. a rule for that that I it's like a level test. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I roll a d twelve, uh, and if you roll yeah. equal to or below level, you're recognized. Yeah. Oh, that's so, great. Yeah. And it, I think a lot of it for one to ten levels, like DCC or sharp swords. They use yeah. one through ten. I like that because I think Hoy, I think the the one potential problem with having it be a bonus on a reaction table is that it, that insinuates that them being famous is a good thing. Well, you know, because yeah. if, 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 if you're playing AD&D and yeah. you're all lawful good paladins, right. then absolutely, like, add, get, right. make it a bonus to the right. reaction table. But if you're a bunch of murder hobos in DCC, <laughs> then <laughs> that's well, probably not going to be in your best interest. Let me say bonus. Let me say modifier. Okay. So it could go in either way. So let's say you have a uh, you know, plus three modifier, mm-hmm. right? It could be uh, plus three to intimidate, and so it would be positive in one sense because people would be too afraid to attack you. But it also yeah. could be a minus three to get sort of like reasonable cooperation from, you know, the average person. Like people would just like close the door in your face instead of like, you know, dr- sharing drinks and telling rumors to you, right? So I think it's just, it's it's an adjudication thing that often comes up in OSR games and that we have to be sort of, uh, flexible how we present stuff mm-hmm. and so if we're just thinking oh it's just a straight modifier you're right you know a straight bonus you're right that's not that's not going to work yeah right i uh-huh. think what might be fun is you know diogo was talking about the level test yeah. do the level test and then if you're playing dcc do a luck check to see if once you pass the level test whether whether you're, you're noticed for a good reason or for a bad reason right yeah <laughs> uh, and dcc actually also works because you also have the personality so you can throw that in there i mean there's any number of, of sort of like Points of convergence, yeah, you know, and of course, old classic classic D and D has charisma, so you know, you can use these all to your advantage. It's just sort of first figuring out what you want to do with those things. But I think reputation, I think, is a terrific thing to have in the game. Um, you know, that you're not just a random because Conan is clearly leveling up both as a warrior, but as you say, at becoming a, a, a great general and a leader, mm-hmm. right? And um, you know, I think that, you know, obviously in games like RuneQuest-based games and in GURPS, there's there's skills that will allow for that. And D&D doesn't specifically have that, but it should be encapsulated in the fact of leveling up. Yeah. You know, and, and I think your mechanic sounds really elegant way to do it. So I have a question for you guys. So I um, in, in the Conan stories, it seems like 95 percent of the enemies Conan is faced with are other people. How well do you feel like that translates to fantasy gaming? Well, that depends on the fantasies. If it's D&D, it doesn't work like that. There's always goblins and kobolds and orcs and things like that. But when I try to play uh, uh, at least sharp and sinister spells, I try to do that. Most of the enemies are going to be humans. Yeah. Like there is maybe, like in the, in the witch hobby board, there is that, that terrible monster in the, in mm-hmm. the church that's buried there. But yeah. the enemies are most of the time um, humans, maybe humans working for a sinister cult that has this monster uh, mutant uh, chief cultist there. But most of them are are, are men and, and women with evil 
tendencies or opposatory <laughs> or objectives. Not yes. necessarily evil because players can be quite evil too. Yes. Right? But they, they are opposing <laughs> your, your objectives. <laughs> right. This is, you, has a bit of that, but sometimes it's straight up monsters, right? Right. Yeah. Generally, in a DCC published adventure, when you're walking around in a dungeon, you're encountering weird monsters left and right. You're not usually encountering other people. Mm -hmm. And I guess part of my question here. But is, you see Lankmar, Lankmar, at least the Lankmar adventures true. I have, they're, they're mostly humans. The the more poopy adventures from Harlem is true, like uh, Tower of the Black Pearl, mm -hmm. or the Pirates. and Yeah, that's true. Um, but I, I do think it is a safe, um, it is safe to say that like most of the modules you open by, by Goodman Games, it's usually just lots and lots of weird monsters, which is great. It's really fun. But I'm curious, do you guys feel like there's any kind of a, any 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 kind of a problem with having most of your enemies being human from a gameplay perspective or from uh... answer it however you want okay I think one danger from uh, a game master perspective is that the game master will suddenly take make it more PvP like uh, like directly oppositional mm -hmm. to the player because they're invested now in this sort of NPC right as opposed to a monster like oh well this is my character that I'm playing against you yeah. know the party in a sense um because you obviously you know if it's a dragon's dragon right you know or it's a purple worm it's not intelligent it's just a monster yeah but then suddenly it's like oh i'm i'm investing this uh human villain with personality of course i want them to win you know <laughs> right sure. and so you might sort of sort of tilt the game or pitch the game subconsciously right so it's just something to be aware of yeah yeah Diego, do you have any other things that uh, leapt out of these stories for you well i i like the using humans as as monsters i sometimes if i'm running dnd &D, i even substitute barbarians for humans and i think it's it offers more more options because i really gonna kill every, they're more uh sensible situations for the players they have to think are really gonna kill all these people or can we try to bargain with them there's more they have more options to how to react to those people yeah. I really like that more than just monsters because monsters are monsters. Let's kill them all. But right, if right. they're humans, totally. There's right, right. there's no there's no moral question right. when you're fighting some kind of a you know right. hideous hell beast. But right. with a person, it does become or more even, complicated. Even with any kind of humanoid monster like orc, yeah. you just replace orc with bar as you say barbarian or or bandit. Yeah. Right. You I know. don't like the, those discussions. Oh, are they killing baby orcs? They're fucking orcs. <laughs> exactly. Fuck baby orcs. Right. Right. And what's what's but what's, if they're human, then, right. then that's that's really if you want to make this, this moral choice. With right. baby orcs, simply replace them with humans. Yeah, you don't have to force this. Right. And humans do terrible things. Like right. you know, I yeah. like right now I've been listening to a lot of true crime podcasts lately, and mm. like the kind of things people do to each other are insane. Right. But even in these stories, like we've got these, we've got these really vicious bandits and outlaw gangs who are like when it's in, um, it's in the Road to Eagles, I think. Yeah, when they when they kill Kurish Khan. And then suddenly the 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 whole tribe or the uh, bandits goes insane and they're like throwing live babies into bonfires and just like tearing apart young women while they're still alive. Mm -hmm. And if you're willing to go that dark in your campaign, you've got some really compelling uh, enemies mm -hmm. who are also where it is also kind of morally uh, ambiguous because maybe not all of them are evil. Right. And then what are you willing to do to fight back against that? How far do you go? Do you automatically execute like any of the the, the, the villains people mm -hmm. side if you capture them? Or do you find a way to, you know, um, 
throw them in jail? What, what exactly? Because like one of them, I think they were whenever they whenever they caught their enemies, they were flaying them alive. Right. Uh, so am I gonna am I gonna be good to my captors right. when if they had captured me, I'd be flayed alive right, right. now? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. And about the adversarial GMing, I kind of think our sword games are kind of adversarial to some point. So of course, the game master has the power to kill everybody if he wants. Mm-hmm. But the part to create this uh, health rivalry between the <coughs> judge and the players, I think it's good to create tension and to create a "haha, got you" or "hey, we we succeeded, you bastard," <laughs> things like that. <laughs> Right, I, I think, think there's a fine that's balance. Fun. I mean, I do like to have, like, to know that I'm uh, when I'm playing as a player that I'm trying my best, and that the game master is like bringing their peak skill to. But um, the the fairness or unfairness should be baked into the situation as it's set up, not into how the person is playing it. You know, in a sense, in a sense, of like, oh, I'm going to negate the thing because you know I don't feel like you're. You know, you're that's the proper way that you would kill the villain, right? No, yeah. no yeah. of course not. You know, yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Um and, and I don't think that's a huge problem this day and age, but I think it's just it's just a matter of play style and sometimes or even your maturity as a player and a game master on the other side of the table, right? Because I remember definitely playing sort of yeah. straight straight up adversarial. I'm gonna do uh, my job is to kill you all. So no, it's my job is to give you the the greatest peril that you have some chance of surviving and the feeling that you were really rewarded by surviving. Yeah. Is is my, my take on it. But sometimes he says that just to, right. To get in the, in the, in the vibe of the game. Oh, I'm like, I'm going to kill you all. I don't know. Matt Finch says he does that. He does the, I forgot the term in English, but to talk (laughs) bad to the players and do the the, trash talk. Yeah. Yeah, Trash trash talk talk to players. But when, when they succeeded, he, he he's happy for them. He congratulates them and say, "Yeah, well, great." And yeah. well, we're, we're weren't just trash talking us. Yes, but it's part of the fun, right? Right, of course. Right. Yeah, no, of course. I that's and that's like a different aspect of it. And 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 I think it's part of a sort of knowing who you're playing with, or at least by reputation, if not by playing with them a lot, right? So yeah. Um, so yeah. this is probably a good place for us to start wrapping up. So uh, Diogo, do you is there any like? One last thing that you really wanted to to talk about before we wrap this up uh, about the about the stories. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Uh, I read somewhere that was some some kind of relationship, uh, like sexual relationship between the two sisters in the witch that was born, but I I didn't catch that in the book. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't pick up on that either. Some something weird. <clears throat> I will say to that. Um, I, I wasn't buying that she wasn't going to disfigure her. Right. I was buying that she wouldn't kill her, that right. she would want to keep her alive and torture her. But I figure if she's that evil and hates her that much and also hates her beauty that much, that right. she would at least be disfiguring her. Right, right. Yeah, I thought about that too. People wouldn't recognize her. I thought when, when we get to the point that we'll save her, nobody would recognize her. But yeah, there she was just as just as beautiful, but with ragged clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any last thing you wanted to say, Hoy? Um, actually that I really liked the beginning of Black Colossus because it's actually literally a separate adventure. It's a whole actual D&D adventure because it's Shavatas. Yes! Oh, yeah. right. oh, Shavatas is literally a D&D Oh, there's piece. so much good stuff to talk about there. Right. Yes, he's, you're he's, right. He's like, 
detecting secret doors. He's pressing yeah. on all these combinations to open the, the tomb. And we find out that he went on a whole nother adventure just to get the venom that he wanted for this. So there's an adventure that he went on before he went on this adventure. Right. Yeah. And so this could easily be a whole adventure. It could be a campaign. A campaign, and then the characters <laughs> die off, and then you bring up a whole nother party, and they find the remains of the previous party or yes. the previous adventure. Oh, that's great. Right, and, and yeah. go on from there, which I know they've done with, um, like, Thulean Echoes for Lamentations and stuff yeah. like that. But I just really like that, that that this is the thief of thieves. He's the greatest thief, yeah. you know, in the known world. And he still, you know, opens his tomb and bad things happen. Yeah. <laughs> right? And then it cuts away, and it's months later or years later, and then this, this evil wizard has swept out of the South with this giant army. Amazing. Right. And yes. so I think that, that beginning of Black Colossus is really terrific. Yeah. And I also think that's a, that's a great idea of like, how can you turn a TPK into something really fun? Yeah. You know, I think if you do have a TPK, maybe have that TPK somehow, if, if it makes sense in the fiction, right. be the start of some really horrific change in the campaign world. Right. So that when you've got your whole brand new set of adventurers, right you now have something new they're fighting that's a result right. of their TPK. And you can tie it back into this whole reputation thing we're talking about. That great party oh, of yeah. adventurers and they're wiped out to a man, right? Yes. And everyone's like really afraid. You know? Oh, that's awesome. You so. start hearing humors of what they did just right. slightly changed some, some parts. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. And players that's get pissed off because they're, they're bad-mouthing their characters. Right. Yeah. Their, <laughs> right. characters. yeah, so they're trying to find the truth about it. It's like, no, no, that's not what really happened. <laughs> yeah, those guys, they, they yeah. unleash the demon hordes on us. Player knowledge versus character knowledge. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, Diogo, thank you so much for being on the show. We've had a great Thanks time for having, having you on here. Yeah, Diego, it's a pleasure to meet you. Hope we can have you on again sometime soon, and I hope we can def- definitely meet in real life at some point. Sure, I hope so. Yeah. Yes. You guys both in New York or? Yeah, for the moment. Yeah. For the moment until oh, I make yeah. my, my move. <laughs> yeah. So coming up will be episode 29 is Fritz Leiber's Swords in the Mist. Episode 30 is A Merit's Creep Shadow Creep. Uh, we're pretty easy to find on social media if you look for us on Facebook and yeah. Twitter and all yep. that stuff. Uh, and uh, for show notes, appendixandbookclub.com. And if you want to drop us a note, appendixandbookclub at gmail.com. Perfect. Well, thank you guys for listening. All right. And see you you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.